Uh, We come this morning to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look specifically at verses 9 through 14 together this morning in our uh, fairly new series, Christ Over All. As we saw last week, uh, Colossians is a letter that is written to a new and really thriving church plant that has sprouted up in the very small, out-of-the-way town of Colossae. And even though the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter, never physically visited that town, the infectious nature of the gospel spread as he shared it with a man named Epaphras and with a man named Philemon. And those two guys took the good news of the gospel back to their hometown and shared the good news and saw their city changed by the gospel and saw lives changed for all eternity. So last week we began our study of the book and we looked at verses one through eight in Paul's opening greetings and we saw that essentially uh, the gospel gives us three things. It gives us a new identity, it gives us a new calling, and it gives us a new mission. And so uh, now we we turn back to Paul and, and what does he have for us next? And it is striking that the very next thing that Paul does is he prays. Paul stops and he prays for this brand new church plant and these fairly new believers in the city of Colossae. Uh, Maybe you have wondered in your own life, how ought I to pray for myself? Or how ought I to pray for the church? How should I pray for fellow believers, whether they be here in my town or, or around the world? Well, Paul is going to give us his answer here this morning, and you will be shocked to find out that I have managed to work Paul's prayer into three points. You're welcome. Those are a right knowledge, a right walk, and a right power source, that those are the prayers that Paul will offer up on behalf of God's people then and on behalf of us this morning. Hear God's word now this morning, Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen and amen. Let's pray one more time. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Father, may it be a a light unto our feet. Father, would you lead us and guide us into your truth and into your grace this morning. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So again, here are three ways that Colossians is going to show us how we ought to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, even as Paul prayed for the Colossians. The first we see very clearly in verse 9, Paul prays for them and for us to be filled with the knowledge of his will. The knowledge of his will. Now, to be clear here right up front, Paul is not talking about all of us becoming prophets. He's not talking about us knowing uh, the future or knowing God's secret decretive will. Paul is praying that we would know what God wants us to be and what he wants us to do. And God has been clear in his word about those commands. To take a very brief sampling from Scripture, Uh, Matthew 22, Jesus, quoting the Old Testament, says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
This is the great and first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Micah 6.8, famously, we are told, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, that's also the word mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus, at the end of the book of Matthew, gives us the great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Paul prays for us to have knowledge of God's will for our lives. Now, the word knowledge there in Greek, it's the word epigenosis, and it means understanding something distinctly as true. This is a prayer for us to know God's absolute truth because God is a God of absolute truth. And then he talks about, he prays for the will, which in Greek is the word thelema. And thelema means an attitude of mind, especially one that that favors one alternative over another. This is God's absolute authority that in my will, I am saying, I desire, Lord, to be submissive to your absolute truth and your knowledge will define my knowledge. Colossians declares over and over again, in fact, throughout the book, that there is this absolute truth and absolute authority in Christ who is over all. So the the purpose of our, our very lives is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We considered that reality last week. And so Paul prays that the Colossians would know how to live out this purpose. Now, as we think about our world around us, it's sort of the postmodern or so it is described a reality that we live in. There is an inevitable obstacle to approaching Christ and his authority and in his truth because the mantra of our day concerning knowledge is what? Well, there is no truth except for what I decide to be true in my own heart. And there is no authority except for myself. But Colossians ascribes all authority and all truth to Christ. And if we want to have true knowledge, then it comes from knowing Christ. Now, even in our own, uh, I would say, American church or Christian culture, if you are not aware, uh, I would say that we live in a fairly anti-knowledge anti-theological, anti-authority era in church history. Um, J.T. English was a pastor at Village Church, which is out in Plano, Texas. He wrote a book a few years ago called Deep Discipleship, and he touches on something that I think is important for us to look at our own hearts, our own church, our own church cultures, and discern, is there an issue here? So he writes this, everyone is being discipled. The question is, what is discipling us? The majority of Christians today are being discipled by popular media, flashy events, and folk theology because churches have neglected their responsibility to make disciples. But the church is not a secondary platform in the mission of God. It is the primary platform God uses to grow people into the image of Jesus. Therefore, as church leaders, it is our primary responsibility to establish environments and relationships where people can be trained, grow, and be sent as disciples. This is my own opinion here, but I would say to you that in the last 30 years, again, I'm 40, so really in my life that what I've seen is there's been a, a, a slow but, but subtle shift away from what we might call Christian education, to use a general statement, we might call it head knowledge, and towards Christian community uh, that we might call 
heart knowledge in a general sense. Now, I think that that was a good move in general and a needed move at the time, but I would suggest to you this morning that as we look at our church culture around us in our world, that we need to consider swinging back a little bit as well. Because currently, again, as we look at American Christianity, we have Christians who are great buddies, but they have no idea who Jesus is. They have no idea what Jesus has said in his word, and we as his sheep are getting eaten by the wolves. Uh, This in particular is our prayer for the next generation of Christian leaders as we inevitably will hand off the torch to the next generation. Uh, J.T. English writes this. He says, while community is an indispensable part of discipleship, I'm not saying that we ought not to be in community, nor is he. It isn't discipleship by itself. We need more Bible, more theology, more spiritual disciplines, and more gospel. If we want to make holistic disciples, then our discipleship must also be holistic. So hear me say clearly, we need both knowledge and Christian community. In fact, as we continue to walk through Paul's prayer, he will give us an even bigger vision by the time we are done, but we need both. My point here at the moment, though, is don't trash knowledge. That tends to be the culture that we see, not necessarily in this church, but in American Christianity, is that we trash knowledge. So I would say to you this way, don't drive a wedge between knowing God and knowing about God or knowing God's word, because you will not find that wedge in scripture. To know God is to know God's word. To know God is to know about him. Jesus, in his own prayer, the high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 3, Jesus prays, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus' prayer is that we would know God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit more deeply. Uh, J.T. English punctuates his comment by saying, our church's discipleship practices ought to lead our members into a deeper relationship with and understanding of our God as well as greater intimacy with his body, the church. The primary pathway of discipleship is God himself. God is the goal of deep discipleship. To him I say, well played, sir. Number two, Paul prays for us to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. We see this in verses 10 through 12. We've heard about Paul's prayer for knowledge, and now he calls us into a right walk So again, verses 10 through 12, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So Paul has prayed for our right knowledge And now he's going to pray for a right walk. And he gives us in there four sort of sub points or four ways that we are commanded into this right walk of knowing Christ. And the first phrase that he uses is a worthy walk. We see this at the beginning of verse 10. A worthy walk. So we've considered knowledge and we now shift to what it means to to sort of live it out in in a walk. R. Kent Hughes says this, I find this helpful. He says, if our doctrine lifts us so high that our feet cannot reach the ground, it is false. Paul prayed that the Colossians would walk the talk. 
Uh, The catchy title of the book, All I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, unfortunately can reflect the attitude of some believers towards growing only in knowledge in their Christian faith. Well, I already know all the stuff. I'm I'm good. Uh, Marva Dawn writes this. She says, television has habituated its watchers to a low information to action ratio. I like that. What's your information to action ratio? She says that people are accustomed to learning good ideas, even from a, a, a fantastic sermon, and then doing nothing about them, right? We have this ability to, to gain knowledge, but nothing comes out of it. And here, through Paul's prayer, God is commanding us not just to know, but then also to do, to act, to walk, so that knowing God and knowing about God and experiencing God's grace would result in an outpouring of good works, to use another Bible phrase. Uh, consider the scripture on this. Again, just a brief survey, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 5.6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So, If you want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, you have to understand that there is a ditch on both sides. If if the path is following Christ, living by his grace, and and following out what Paul is praying here as he prays for believers to have right knowledge and, and right walk, there is a ditch that we can fall into on each side, and they sort of are the extreme direction of missing what Jesus is showing us. Okay, so on one side of the ditch, if you will, on one side of the ditch is this, the, the social activist Christian who claims to jump into every problem of society, poverty, hunger, injustice of every kind, and judge those who don't jump in exactly the right time and exactly the right way, but neglects the greater reality that when the poor, what the poor and the marginalized need above everything else is still the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. There is a ditch that we can fall into. But on the other side, there is a second ditch. And this would be the the self-anointed theological cop. And I am here to make sure that you believe and teach and think all the right things, who is obsessed with knowing the idiosyncrasies of doctrine, but has no awareness of what maybe are primary versus secondary issues, and who thinks that their pet topic in theology is equivalent to the reality of the importance of Jesus being the only way to heaven. And what we can tend to do in that scenario is we ruin relationships both with lost people and with found people because we've never actually put our knowledge into action and shared the gospel with our brokenhearted neighbor right down the street. There is a ditch on both sides. The church is filled increasingly with both extremes of people falling into either ditch, but the path of Christ, says Paul here in his prayer again, is that there would be right knowledge and a right walk, that they are both critically necessary. So secondly, he says, after a worthy walk, he says, a knowledgeable 
walk. And this is the second half of verse 10. And this may seem strange because Paul just opened with a lengthy prayer for our knowledge, and now he comes right back to it when he's considering this other aspect in regards to walking right. I think what he is doing here for us is is identifying that there is this healthy discipleship cycle that takes place, that right knowing of Christ leads to right action, and right action leads to right knowing. Now, at New City, we use the language more frequently of both being disciples of Jesus Christ and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And I would say to you that it is that same healthy discipleship cycle, that if you lose one, you will eventually lose the other. So if we are truly being disciples of Jesus, it will lead to the action of making new and maturing disciples. And if we are in the action of making disciples, both lost and found, it will show us our total inadequacy on our own and remind us of the unbelievable sufficiency and greatness of Jesus and make us go, I can't do the mission of Jesus on my own. I want to know Jesus more. And I want to know about Jesus more so that I can continue to be a part of this making of disciples. We need both. And so Paul is highlighting this cycle. Thirdly, Paul teases out a powerful walk. And he goes there in verse 11. To go back to the Greek again, the word power here in Greek is the word dunamis, from which we get the English word dynamite. Where is the dynamite? But this is not our dynamite. This is God's dynamite. Put this in another perspective. So Mount St. Helens in Washington State erupted in 1980. Probably the most powerful uh, volcanic eruption that, that we have recorded in our at least modern times. So when it erupted, it unleashed a power that ripped 1,300 feet off of the mountain in minutes. Um, it is equal, they believe, to 10 million tons of dynamite. Or if you want to do the exchange rate, 500 atomic bombs, whichever you prefer. So the point here that Paul is making, I think, is that on your own, your power is like a little firecracker by comparison. And what you need, you have already been given in Christ, which is this atomic bomb level power, the power of God and creation and sustaining his people that can rip the top off of a mountain at a word. That is the power that you have been given in Christ, and Paul prays that you would know and experience this power because you're going to need it, essentially. He says this power is for endurance and patience. And as believers in this world, you are going to need some endurance and you're going to need some patience. And he says that it would come with with joy. The language that Paul here is, is using is really the reality of one what one faces when you are in a position of war. And brothers and sisters, we are in a war. It is a war that Christ has already won, and yet he has called us to continue to be a part of fighting until the day that Jesus Christ comes to take us home. We are in a war. We need endurance. We need God's power. We need his patience. I was a history major, so forgive me. Winston Churchill makes one of the most famous speeches ever. Uh, A few uh, days after the entire English force had to evacuate back across the English Channel out of France, this was June 4th, 1940, the early days of World War II, 
and the entire nation is just dejected. They've been defeated. They nearly lost everything right then and there, but they've managed to get some of their people back across the English Channel, and, and they're considering the idea of going to war, and they are terrified. But Winston Churchill gives us these words, and I think they apply very beautifully to how we as Christians can sometimes feel overwhelmed, but here Paul's prayer resonates with the, the idea that Winston Churchill puts forth. He says this in his speech, even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail, meaning put up the white flag. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. The power that we are talking about here is the power of God, not to pick up a physical weapon, but to pick up the spiritual weapons of life-giving salvation, grace, power, and mercy found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. You and I have been given power for endurance and patience. And fourthly, here in this middle section, as Paul is praying for us to have a right walk, he prays for us to have a thankful walk. This is in verse 12. A thankful walk. Thankful to the Father. I think we sometimes think that if we're going to give God thanks, then the thanks should come when God has clearly and fully resolved whatever troubles we are facing. This is not how Paul prays. Paul in no way ever in scripture gives us this caveat of once God satisfies all of the things that you think God should do, then be thankful. No, no, no. He just commands thankfulness. Paul is in prison writing this letter. The believers are experiencing all kinds of persecution in the town of Colossae. And he says, give the father thanks. How do we do that? Uh, Corey Ten Boom, an, an, a Christian hero from the World War II era, gives us a, an idea here. Um, Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy uh, were transferred to the worst German prison camp uh, of the time, which was called Ravensbrück. And they got there, they found that the barracks were extremely overcrowded and also flea infested. That morning after they got there, their scripture reading was in 1 Thessalonians, and they were reminded to rejoice always, pray constantly. And give thanks in all circumstances. So Betsy tells Corey, you need to stop and thank the Lord every day for every detail of these new living quarters. And Corey says, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I'm not going to thank God for the fleas, quote unquote. But Betsy persisted and eventually Corey finally gave in. And over the next few months, they were surprised to find how openly they were able to hold Bible study and prayer together with other believers that were in the prison camp. And they came to realize that the reason that the Germans weren't giving them a hard time was because of the fleas. Germans didn't want to go anywhere near it. And they became even more thankful and grateful for those dirty, rotten fleas. Third and finally, Paul in his prayer on behalf of believers thanks God for our share in the inheritance of Christ. This is verses 12 through 14, and it is 
a beautiful just litany of, of the amazing grace that our all-sufficient, all-supreme Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. So let's listen again to the, the, the real power, the foundation here in verses 12 through 14. Again, giving thanks to the Father. Why? Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So right knowledge, a right walk, but Paul wants to end by making it very clear that we must have the right power source behind those things. See, as we grow, as believers, as we gain in knowledge, as our walk matures, we never outgrow the simple, life-changing beauty of the gospel. There is never a time, believer, where you may say or even think, yeah, I remember that, that moment I accepted Jesus, but I, I moved on to bigger and better things. I, I'm beyond the gospel now. No, 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 no. <laughs> we never move beyond the simple, profound, life-changing gospel. See, the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for sinners like me, changes everything. Every other religion, every other worldview on the planet says You have been separated from God, and if you want to get back to him, you must, out of your own effort, do good works. They might describe them differently, but that is the heartbeat behind each, that if you want to get back to God, you've got to get yourself there. You've got to earn his attention, earn his favor, do enough things so that you can reconnect with God. But in Christianity, we have an entirely different message. If you want to know God, if you want to walk worthy, uh, you can't earn your way because Jesus has already earned the way for you. Jesus has done what you could not and what you would not do. Paul here, again, as he is so many times in the New Testament, is clear that the power, the source for our obedience, the source for our righteousness, the source for our good works is the free grace of God the Father accomplished by Jesus Christ, his son, and applied daily in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. To put it another way, good works are the fruit, but not the root of a right relationship with God. Looking to the scripture one more time here, Ephesians chapter two. We, we very often know verses eight and nine, which are incredibly powerful, but hear also verse 10 and see how Paul works us through the reality of grace and good works. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the power source. And so Paul says that the Father qualifies us to share in the inheritance of his one and only Son, Jesus. Anyone can receive a new and eternal inheritance in heaven that will never spoil or fade that they did not earn because Christ has already earned it on your behalf. Anyone can become a son or a daughter, part of the family of the Most High God because of what our brother Jesus has already done. It says the Father has delivered us from darkness. And by darkness, he means both ignorance, lack of knowledge of the Son, and wickedness, 
lack of walking in the footsteps of the sun. Darkness had its chance. Darkness had its moment. You know, you think back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Darkness, evil, Satan, seeking to destroy Jesus, and it lost. We have this, this amazing moment prophesied at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, that there would come one who would, though that the serpent would strike his heel, he would crush his head. And that very night, the head of the serpent was crushed. Darkness has lost. And the Father has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus. Not a move to a new country, not a move to a new political affiliation, a radical change of heart. To have been moved from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, not by your actions or reactions, but by the grace of Jesus alone. The Son, the Bible says, has purchased our redemption and forgiveness of sins. It's because the reality of, of sin very simply is this. We do bad things, and those bad things do separate us from God. It is the inevitable result of our wickedness. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus physically, literally, truly came to this earth, fully God, became fully man, and died on a bloody cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And if you've never put your faith, your trust, your belief, all of who you are, trusting in Jesus, then, then I, I beg you, let today be the day that you cry out to Jesus and say, I want what you have already done, what you have already earned applied to my account, because I know that my sin deserves God's wrath, but you have made a way for me to experience God's favor, God's forgiveness, God's new life, God's eternity in a very real place called heaven. If you are a believer this morning and you've asked Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, then Paul says here this morning by example that we ought to, among many things, pray. That it ought to drive us to prayer. Because it's not about our power and our ability. It's about calling upon God and his power and his ability. And we're invited to, to ask, God, give us a deeper knowledge of you. Help me to know you, Lord Jesus, even deeper. God, help me to walk the way that you would have me walk. Help me to follow hard after you, Lord. Let it not just be a head knowledge, but let it lead to obedience, to action. And help us to remember that the power source behind it is not us, but it is Christ in me, Christ in you, Christ in us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are humbled by your holiness, by your kindness, by your greatness. And Father, we're humbled when we look at ourselves. Lord, whether we have pursued lies in exchange for your truth, or whether we have become puffed up about knowing things, Father, whether we have been lazy and, and been absent from obeying you and living out our faith by, by doing things that are pleasing to you, good works, or whether we have become self-righteous and haughty about the good works that we do and made it more about the things rather than about you. Father, forgive us. Lord, I, we confess we are sinners. We are in need of your grace. Father, we're amazed by your grace. We're thankful not only did Jesus die for our sins, but he three days later rose again from the dead. 
We're thankful that we worship a God who is alive, a God who is Lord even this day, a God who has come and a God who is coming again. And so, Father, we are filled with hope. We are filled with joy. We are filled with endurance to face the challenges of this life. Father, we desire to go to war afresh today, not with the weapons of the world, but with the weapons of the Spirit. Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might show love, that we might know love. Father, remind us that it is only and always by your grace. Lord, we love because you first loved us and you still love us and you'll continue to love us. And Father, when the days come, when the inevitable moments where I don't love you the way that I should or I don't love my neighbor the way that I should, I thank you that there is forgiveness. There is redemption at the foot of the cross. So we come to you this morning for more. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.